You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Karen Brooks on the show with me today. Karen has an amazing new book. It's called The Lady Brewer of London, and uh, it's available everywhere now. When you're hearing this, you can go grab your copy of it. And uh, what a what a phenomenal piece of historical fiction that I know you guys are really going to love. Uh, welcome to the show, Karen. Oh, thank you so much, Hank. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Uh, Karen, for the last 1,000 shows that we've done, we have begun uh, each show with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Oh, gosh. Wow, that's a hard question. Oh, I think it would have to be when I first picked up one of C.S. Lewis's books. And I think I read them out of order and it was The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. And I remember the whole notion of being able to go into your wardrobe and it was a pathway, a, 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 a threshold into another world it was so exciting. And I'll admit something here. I actually probably spent a good part of a year when I was eight years old in my wardrobe trying to get to Narnia. And it took me a while to understand it was one that wasn't going to happen. It was my imagination that was required to do, you know, to do the journeying. But it was also the power of words to transport you. And I think that was the moment when I understood, yeah, the power of words. And wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to do that for other people? So I think that was probably the moment. I think it was lodged very deep inside me and it wasn't something that I actively sought to do. And I sort of fell into it in a way um, through other jobs, you know, that, that involve writing. But the power of imagination, the power of words was very firmly lodged in my head and heart at that moment. What's really funny, Karen, is that uh, over the years of doing this show and talking to, uh, you know, hundreds and hundreds of authors from uh, all across the publishing spectrum and across genres, um, there, there's a, a similar thread in a lot of people's stories, and that's that they were completely enchanted by, um, you know, their imagines, imaginations taken over by uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe or, uh, or uh, The Hobbit. And th something about these fantasy stories, those in particular, but uh, fantasy stories in general – um, that, that are at the heart of so many people's, uh, personal story. Why do you think it is that these kinds of stories and maybe these stories in particular, um, have such a dramatic effect on so many of us? Yeah, that's so interesting to find out too. And I've found that commonality as well, that and in enlightened stories as well, yes. which also were quite fantastical in many ways. I think it's because in childhood you 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 believe in magic and wonder and possibility so much. You know, one of the sad things about um, stumbling into the adult world is you start to, um, I guess, 
be woken to the fact that the you know magic doesn't really exist. Though I like to believe it does, and we can create our own magic. You know, it might be pragmatic, it might be science based, it might be reality based. But what's love if not something magical? What's friendship? You know, really deep friendship if not something magical? So I guess I still have that childhood belief in one sense. But I think it it is the the fantastical the fact that. Um, you really are taken away from your everyday. And I think particularly in hard times, tough times, and they, of course, are on a spectrum, aren't they? You know, for some young people, for some children, it might be hearing their parents argue for the first time or being denied something that they really want or experiencing loss and grief. For others, of course, it's much more serious um, things. And through stories, we're able to escape our reality. And I think we don't ever lose that. I think once that happens to you as a child, that a story captivates you and allows you to walk in someone else's shoes, to be somewhere else for a period of time in your mind, in your imagination, it's it's so powerful. And what's lovely, of course, is that if you're a reader, as an adult, you realise that stories still do that, that that's something that doesn't change. And I think it links you back to your childhood in a way the power of stories. And I think at the moment, more than at any other time, the contemporary generations who are experiencing COVID and all the terrible things that are happening because of that, so many of us have turned to the arts and reading again in ways that we probably haven't since childhood and really appreciating the solace that it offers, the comfort and the escapism and the pleasure all over again. Um. I, I was talking yesterday, Karen, uh, to Otto Pinsler, who owns a, a small press publisher and a a, uh, a mystery bookstore in in uh, New York and uh, one of the oldest um, specialty bookstores. And and we were talking about the effects of of COVID and and you know all of the craziness that has been twenty twenty. Um, and, and, and we were talking about that, that a lot of people have, have turned back to reading and, um, you know, he has a very specific story and he goes into many details, but I, I, I agree with you, uh, that it seems like this has been a great year for reading and for readers. I I think a lot of people are getting back in touch with their roots and their early loves of reading this year. I agree. It's the same in Australia. And you hear so many lovely stories, that word again, about people uh, going back to their bucket list of reading, you know, books they always intended to read, whether it's, you know, War and Peace, you know, some great tome or revisiting the the Narnia stories or the the Lord of the Rings or um, picking up an author they always meant to read, but never quite did. And and um, so they're discovering new authors. They're going back to old ones. They're rereading the classics, and just um, people sharing that with each other too. And I guess tackling their toppling to be read red piles is really nice as well. I know I've um, been doing an awful. I'm an avid reader, but I've been doing even more reading than usual as well. And it's been wonderful. It, it's been it's been essential to my emotional and psychological well being, which I think it has for a lot of people. Absolutely. Uh, Karen, for someone who had such an indelible mark uh, placed on them at an early age and that you knew that you would be a writer one day, um, you have this fantastic story um, that of your journey, which all writers should go on, um, where you've been a playwright and an army officer uh, and an actress and uh, a boutique manager and 
Uh, you've had all of these great stops along your journey. Um, did you know when you, when you were an adult, uh, you know, and it's this funny thing that happens where real life gets in the way of our dreams at some point and you have to pay bills and raise a family and all of that stuff. Um, but did you know that that you would come back around to writing, that this was a stop that you were going to make? Uh, I don't think I did. Uh, having said that, though, I never really stopped writing. Um, I, I would always be um, putting down stories on paper or trying out ideas. Most of them were complete rubbish, of course. But um, as you say, real life gets in the way. I also had two children. And um, when I left the army, I served for five years and they were really incredible years. And I learned so much and had wonderful mentors. And of course, you're writing then too, but you're writing a particular type of way, reports and um, you know, quite quite dull and boring stuff and uh, policies, I guess, and things like that. But I, when I left the army, I realised I had no qualifications. So I went to university as a mature age student and gained qualifications and also studied literature as part of my degree. And we, again, fell in love with words all over again and in a completely different way. And I never left university. I ended up staying there. I did my honours. I did a PhD and I became an academic. And in many ways, I guess I still keep my finger there. I was an academic for professionally full-time for over 20 years and um, a professor and uh, ran a department and everything and then a school. And, um, again, that that required a completely different type of writing, you know, um, a scholarly type writing and presenting lessons and doing articles for publication and researching. And yet I needed to feed my imagination as well. So whilst I was an academic, I started writing fantasy, actually. And um, because I never lost that love of fantasy, I still have a great love for it, love reading it. And uh, yeah, and and was fortunate enough to be published. So I've, I feel like I um, fed the two parts of my brain, the quite rational and um, uh, guided, I guess, you know, and, and try to contribute to this ongoing uh, discourse of knowledge. And then I also fed the the imaginative part. It was, you know, soul food <laughs> and um, <laughs> did that. So I was very, very fortunate. And I, I did that for quite a number of years. I also wrote for a newspaper as a columnist. So I got a platform in which to sort of, I guess, offer, I hope, informed opinion about politics, about social issues, about all sorts of things, actually. So again, writing was so much a part of my life in all these different um, styles, really. And it wasn't till just really, I think, the last or oh, eight years that I've sort of um, now honed and focusing on historical fiction. And yeah, so in that way, I, I there were many stops. And the way I see it, I always wanted to be an actor. That was always my great passion, my great dream. I guess saying other people's words in a way, wasn't it? And telling other people's stories for the benefit of, of audiences. But um, that sadly didn't happen. But uh, as you say, your life takes you down really interesting paths. But what I found is every single thing I did from being an army officer, what we call here in Australia a checkout chick, I don't know if you use that term over there, you know, where you work in a supermarket, um, to a boutique manager, to everything, to an academic has all um, contributed and fed and been the scaffolding which built, I guess, or as other foundations which now help me become, I hope, a good writer that learns all the time everything I do. So, yeah, it, it, it's not been the journey I, I think I ever thought I'd take, but, wow, it's been 
an incredible one. You, um, your new book, The Lady Brewer of London, is this your fourth historical fiction novel that you've written? Ah, interesting you should say that. Yes, because um, you've got them reverse about in the States. It was my first one here in Australia. Yes, it's the fourth one. Yes, you're quite right. <laughs> I think it's my, um, it was, it, it, oh, I've written 14 books. So, um, yeah, wow. but it's only my fourth historical fiction book in, in the USA. Yeah. Your uh, your obvious yeah. love of fantasy, um, and you talked about that you that you wrote fantasy. Um, is there a connection between fantasy stories and historical fiction? Uh, do you see a kinship in those two genres? Oh, completely. So many of the fantasy writers I know, and this is myself included, use history and myth um, as the basis for their stories, and. A lot of the fantasy writers I know, and I'm fortunate enough to count quite a few among some of my closest friends, many of them are historians in real life and teach at universities, and others um, are avid, avid, keen amateur historians that research deeply to give authenticity and credence to their fantasy stories. So, yeah, I see an absolute kinship, and I always did reams of historical research to write mine, and it was my agent actually saying to me because I'd... um, I'd actually uh, pitched another, an adult fantasy series to her and I started writing it and I'll share this with you. This is a bit embarrassing. She said, um, I sent her the first few chapters and she phoned me up and she said, Karen, Karen, Karen. She said, look, I love it. You write beautifully. It's very, very nice. But darling, she said, you cannot have someone leave their child in a car. I don't like your lead character. She's not very nice. And then she started to tell me, you and there was a reason a child was left in the car and, I, and, and I, I thought I'd explained it well. And, yes, it was the wrong thing to do and that was the whole point. But my agent's gorgeous and she's very direct and she just said, I have a suggestion to make to you. She said, I think it's time for you to leave aside fantasy. She said, you love history so much, you write it so well. She said, just focus on history. So I always take her advice. She's very, very good, as is my American agent. He's wonderful. Um, yeah, and so I switched over completely to historical fiction, but it wasn't a big leap at all. And I think I found my home. I really love it. A hitman with a conscience. Ian Bragg is paid to kill people. Only bad people and not many, but for a great deal of money. Case the target. Make the hit. Move on. Until he meets the woman with sparkling green eyes who changes everything. A few pre-readers had this to say about Ian Bragg. Mark Dawson, million-selling thriller author, says a rip-roaring ride from start to breathless finish. Craig Martell hit a home run with the operator. The taut, lean prose and lightning-fast pace make this a page-turner without sacrificing an ounce of story or depth. You'll find yourself rooting for the hitman main character as he faces the toughest decision of his career. The Operator is the start of a new thriller series I expect to see burning up bestseller list for years to come, says A.C. Fuller, author of The Crime Beat and Alex Vane Media Thrillers. Suave, romantic, and lethal, Ian Bragg is everything you want in a highly paid assassin. Can't wait to ride this train, says James Blatch, self-publishing formula. It's been a long time since I fell this hard in love with a book, a very long time. Author of Women of Wine County Romantic Suspense, Terry Wells Brown says, Grab this book from Craig Martell, The Operator.
Both Barrels Publishing is the brainchild of successful indie author James P. Sumner. He has self-published over 15 titles in the last five years and has over 800,000 downloads so far in his career, meaning he has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share with the indie publishing community. Knowing the struggles of the modern-day indie author as well as he does, he wanted to create a platform that would allow writers of any level to learn the ropes, navigate the pitfalls, and produce a professional novel without wasting time or money in the process. Both Barrels Publishing is the perfect one-stop shop for any indie author, combining James's expertise with his own team of editors and designers so you can help your novel realize its full potential and learn how to publish yourself. The purpose of Both Barrels Publishing is to help indie authors get their novels ready for publication without all the stress, hassle, and unnecessary expense. We want to make your lives easier, which is why we're giving you access to a top-notch team to publish your novels, along with a generous discount on their services. You can also work one-on-one with James to learn the intricacies of self-publishing. No hidden cost, no false promises. We simply want you to publish the best version of your novel. BothBarrelsPublishing.com Do you find it um, easier or harder to write historical fiction over fantasy? And and the reason I ask that is, uh, and pardon me, I'm popping in a cough drop because I've got a, a scratch in my throat. So um, bear with me, please. But um, <laughs> if... What you think about writing fantasy and think that there basically are no rules because you can invent anything that you want on the page. And as long as you're consistent with your own rules, so to speak, then anything's permissible. Um, but historical fiction needs to be at least historically um, correct or, or operate within the bounds of what we can look up or or prove in, in, in some way. Do, do you find one? more restrictive than the other uh you know sometimes in in fantasy we can ha- the the absence of rules makes it harder it's you know it's kind of the 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 illustration of you put a bunch of children on the playground and if there's no fence around it they all kind of huddle to the middle but when you put a fence up they feel free to go out to the boundaries and and you, you, there there's something comforting about boundaries uh do you do you find that true in in either sense Oh, that's a wonderful analogy. I hadn't heard that before. That's fantastic. I think you're absolutely right. They both have their own set of rules. And the important thing about fantasy is to, once you set them, to remain within them. And that poses its own set of challenges. Um, Both genres, historical fiction and fantasy, uh, have very discerning readers. But what I found, I actually found a little bit easier in the fantasy realm because you do have that ability to make things up. And there's a wonderful freedom within the rules you set to do that. Historical fiction is very different in the sense that the rules are preset. And as you say, people can go and look things up and correct you. And they do. And they, you know, <laughs> of course they do. That. <laughs> yeah, of course they do. Yes. And, um, and what, what's hard though, is sometimes when they correct you, they're actually not correct themselves because they haven't done the level of research you have to discover that little nugget that you just had to put in um, at that some historian. And I, I, the journalist in me always double checks my sources. So if I find some wonderful little nugget that I have to include, I go and double check to make sure that it, that really did happen. Um, if it didn't, and I still want to use it, which actually does happen in the Lady Brewer of London, I, I do... Uh, acknowledge that in my author's notes. But anyway, 
So I found historical fiction harder, but it's exactly what you said. I found great comfort from those fences. And I wonder if that's the academic in me. I hadn't thought of it until you gave that analogy. It's so fantastic. I, yeah, I find it easier in some ways, even though I labor and there's blood, sweat and tears and, you know, and I, I suffer these huge crises of self-doubt every time I'm writing and then when the, just prior to the book coming out. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 I'm a, I need a fence. I realise I need boundaries and um, historical fiction gives me those. And, and I do love the research. I do. So, yeah, I, I find it easier to write historical fiction. But when I say easier, that's with huge caveats because it's very demanding <laughs> and it's scary. And sometimes the readers are scary, but I love them to bits too because they're so appreciative and so smart. Love it. Um, you alluded to um, a, a situation a few minutes ago, and, and I want to ask you about this um, because the Lady Brewer of London, uh, you said, was your first historical fiction book that you wrote and published. But here in the United States, where I am, this is a new release. And if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, this was published in Australia as The Brewer's Tale in 2014. Is that right? That is absolutely right. Yep. <laughs> so as someone who um, is writing now for multiple markets, uh, even though uh, America and Australia, we both speak English, uh, granted some of our euphemisms are different as in uh, check out chick. We, we don't say check out chick. <laughs> Um, but uh, I think it's hilarious. Um, what are your thoughts about, you know, writing for multiple markets and, uh, you know, what kind of feeling is it for a writer to, to see your stories, uh, you know, going out to, to other markets and other continents and, you know, how does that feel as a writer? It feels fantastic. I have to tell you, it was always my dream to be published in America. So when I, um, you know, scored an agent there and then um, a publisher, my publisher, William Morrow, are just fantastic. Um, I, I can't begin to tell you how it made me feel. It was just like uh, Christmas for days. <laughs> I was like a kid at Christmas <laughs> for days. And I still get that feeling, even though I'm so far away. I have to tell you, my mother um, lived in America for 15 years until she died. And I used to travel there a lot. So I have a great fondness for America. It's very much a part of my heart. I have family there too. At, they're actually in Chicago, but my mother lived in New York and then latterly in um, Henderson in Las Vegas. Um, so, yeah, I'm very, very fond of the place. I know those regions quite well and I travelled there for work as well. But um, so it was so thrilling. And what's lovely is my books do translate well because there is a great audience there for historical fiction and particularly the type I write, which is set in um usually the United Kingdom, so either in England or um, Scotland, and then with reference to, uh, you know, parts of Europe. So your knowledge of those areas is fantastic and your hunger for stories from the, the eras I write in is very strong as well, like it is here in Australia. So it's been a, a great transition for me and I love the feedback from the readers that they're so discerning and they're so generous, I find. And, and that's been really reassuring for me because I was nervous. I was very nervous as well as excited about um, coming into your market. But you've got loads and loads of um, wonderful readers there. And, and they're, I keep using that word hungry for books. But that, as I said, it's salt food and it's great that you are. I, I am one very appreciative writer, let me tell you. 
Well, and I can only imagine that when you're breaking into another major market like that, um, it sure does help to have a, a, a substantial back catalog, doesn't it? Oh, yes. And, and what's <laughs> interesting about the global market now, too, is that we can access books that aren't even available in our own country. So I know with authors I love, if their books aren't available in Australia, it's very easy for me to you know go through another um, a, another bookshop or something overseas and get it sent to me. And I noticed that a lot of American readers are seeking my back catalogue, even um, stuff that isn't published in your country yet. And that's been really lovely too. Um, yeah, so you're right, it does help. It helps better if they're not out of print, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. but, but certainly, yeah, that, that really, really does help. Yeah. <laughs> so, Karen, tell me a little bit about The Brewer's Tale slash The Lady Brewer of London. Um, I am fascinated by the beginnings of things, and I love to hear about how a story began for someone, because there are lots of books that mean a lot to me. But then when I hear the story uh, of how it came about, it it, it transcends uh, you know my feelings about the book, and it, it becomes uh, an entity all its own. Um, this being your first uh, work of historical fiction, um, as you shifted gears from the things that you had been writing to this, um, what was it that uh, that got this uh, this story going? Was it was it something that you read about a particular time or place, or uh, did you have a, a character in mind? How did this begin? Okay, it's, I'll try and make it a quicker story than it is. Actually, and this isn't in the book, so I will share this with you, Hank, and your lovely listeners. Grief is what gave me this story. I'll, I'll explain to you. I lived in another part of Australia, and one of my closest, dearest, best friends was somebody in, who's known in America, the writer Sarah Douglas. She was a very well-known fantasy and very beloved fantasy writer. She'd also been my friend for over 20 years, and she was basically dying of cancer. And she was on her own in Tasmania, which um, most, of you, you, most of you will know is a small island at the bottom of Australia. And um, she had no one really to care for her. I also had been given a cancer diagnosis and was very ill, but I was, I was not um, uh, terminal. And I was on a very long period of sick leave from work. And we just sold our house where we lived, my husband and I, and I'd been to see Sarah and I was devastated about the condition she was in and with no one to care for her. So my gorgeous husband said, right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pack up, put our stuff in storage, and we're going to go to Tasmania and we're going to look after Sarah. So we did. And sadly, nine months after we arrived here, Sarah died. And I was in the process of grieving, even though I knew, she knew, we all knew she was going to die. It's funny, you do something in your head, you think, because I'm here, because I'm caring for her. Somehow you're going to become the inevitable and it's a real kick in the guts and a real reality check when you don't. So I, my sister had come down to be with me and console me and I was taking her around Hobart and we happened to go into a whiskey bar of all things, a very famous whiskey bar here in Hobart. And, and I was um, listening or I encouraged my sister to listen to the the sort of um, the young woman who gave you a, a, a whiskey tastings and told you all about its history and everything. And I'd already done this um, months earlier and it was really fantastic, but my mind was drifting. And as this young woman's talking, she had a wonderful husky voice and I was feeling very sad. And I remember hearing her talk about night. And for some reason, it's that weird way that your brain does this. Even though she was talking about whiskey, for some reason, there'll be a tap there. And I started thinking about beer 
Now, I don't drink beer. I don't particularly like beer. <laughs> but as she was talking about the production of whiskey, I remember saying to her, excuse me, I know this is a really out of left field question, but didn't women used to make beer? And she said, yeah, I think they did. And it was that that triggered it. And as I sat there and she's listening and my sister's asking questions and progressively drinking more whiskey and getting more inebriated, <laughs> um, I, I was designated driver. I didn't indulge them. I the whole Not the whole story, but the idea about a medieval female brewer jumped into my head. And when I started doing the research, and frankly, I felt like Sarah was leaning over my shoulder. She was the, uh, an historian um, by, by profession who became a full-time fantasy writer, and I really felt her presence. And um, I'm not normally a great believer in that sort of thing, except, again, a type of magic happened. And I began researching, and it just so happened my husband was an avid home brewer. And he'd been in um, the field of psychiatry for over 25 years and was quite burned out. And while we decided we'd stay in Tasmania after and got all our stuff out of storage and, and made a formal move to the state, and he was looking for a job to do something to, you know, I guess change direction with his life. And he became my research assistant. And he loved um, doing all the research and guiding me to talk to brewers, to um, I guess, helping me with the beer tastings and asking all the questions. And he was just a fantastic research assistant, but I loved all the research and got right into it. Anyway, as a consequence, the, um, when I told my um, agent about my idea for the book, she loved it. So, yeah, this idea about a, a medieval woman called Annika Sheldrake, who when her father dies at sea, she's left to support the family on her own. And whilst offers are made to assist her, um, she, you know, whether it's marriage or another type of work or whatever, she rejects these and she turns to what was her mother's family's trade. And using her mother's recipes for ale making, it was called ale back then, she embarks on her own business and she's she is given a bit of um, leeway initially by a lord and uh, she ends up being really, really successful. But, of course, there are other people making ale, men in religious houses, and they don't like what she's doing, how she's interfering with their profits. So a series of events happen to undermine her, tragedy strikes, and she's forced to change, well, set out again, and she ends up in London, basically. And um, so the second part of the story takes us there, and it's what happens to her and her wonderful brewing and all her highs and lows and triumphs and failures. So it's quite epic in a way. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so it's, but it's based on the reality of medieval women and what happened uh, to, to these women who engaged or dared to trade or be in business and, I guess, um, come up against the patriarchy or men. Yeah, so that that's the basis of the story. Of course, it's got a great romance in it. It's got... Um, fantastic friendships. It's got some very dark moments, but none are gratuitous. They're all based on things that would have happened to women in that era. And the, but in the real world, in the meantime, I said my husband was looking for something to do and he enjoyed, um, I, I, I kept listening to him. He loves people and he wanted, thought maybe I should go into hospitality oh, I know what I'll do. I'll also set up like a little, um, you know, little brew house and I'll make beer as well as, you know, coffee and food and all that sort of stuff. 
And I kept watching him and listening to him. And one day we're out walking our dogs and I said to him, darling, why are you even bothering with the coffee part? Why don't you just brew? Why don't you open a brewery? Because, of course, like in America, craft um, brewing is, is becoming, well, it's huge now. Sure, we were, sure. This is talking seven, eight years ago now. And um, he looked at me and he said, are you for real? And I said, yeah, I'm for real. I'm for real. Let's just do it. So um, he did. And now he's actually, a, I can say this about him, I can boast about him, can't I? He's a Absolutely. very very successful craft brewer. We have a very small brewery, but he also has segued into distilling. And our son, our um, eldest child, our son, Adam, is our distiller. So we produce these wonderful spirits and beers. I still don't drink the beers, but um, (laughs) apparently I have a very good palate. So I do taste them and offer feedback, but um, it's usually very, very positive because he makes such good beers. So we all because of the Brewer's Tale slash the Lady Brewer of London. We have a new life. We live in a wonderful state, um, surrounded by fantastic people, very supportive people, and that has not been more evident than through COVID. A great community and um, and very appreciative craft beer drinkers and spirit drinkers. And, yes, all because of that wonderful, wonderful book and my very much missed beloved friend, Sarah Douglas. That is one of the best stories I've ever heard. I love that so much, Karen. That is that is amazing. Yeah, I get emotional actually. I'm telling it still all these years later. Yeah, as you should, as you <laughs> should. That's that's fantastic. Um, of all of the historical fiction that I've read, um, we get to um see the the lives and and machinations of uh several different uh British monarchs, especially. Uh, and see what life was like under their rule and reign and and what society was like. Um, I've never encouraged uh, in, encountered many stories um during the reign of Henry the Fourth, though, and uh, it's very interesting. Uh, what what was it about this monarch uh, that that had you land during his uh, reign? and uh, how did you go about learning uh, about him and about the the time of his uh, uh, of his kingdom? Oh, great question. I haven't been asked that one before. That's such a doozy. Um, oh, is that an expression you use there? A doozy? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> good, good, good. Um, well, as, you know, it's sort of a package deal in that you don't choose the monarch. If you choose the period, the you know, it, he comes or it she comes. them for you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I didn't know much about him at all either. And basically what I want to do too, and I try to do this with all my books because they're the one thing they have in common is about women in trade. I also knew that um, I didn't, when hops was introduced into ale, it became beer and that changed the brewing. Brewing then became an industry. Now it took a couple of centuries, but it did. So I wanted to start my Annika, my lead girl, before hops was introduced. So she's a trailblazer in that way. She is somebody who uses hops. That was important. So that set my dates, which then gave me my king. And as you say, not much is known about um, Henry IV, Henry Bolingbroke, he was also known as, and he was an amazing guy. He um, was a son from memory. Oh, gosh, somebody will correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he was the eldest son of John of Gaunt, who was um, a a child of Edward III. I hope I'm getting it right here. Anyway, he he was a marvellous specimen of manhood, and as a young man, 
He was one of the youngest people to win. Like at 14, he was jousting and throwing, you know, fully grown men off their steeds and incredible. And, and he was just uh, tall, blonde, and, and, and incredibly handsome, apparently, and brave and daring. And he went off to fight battles in Europe and won them and all sorts of things. And basically his cousin, uh, Richard II, who was, it depends which version of history you read, but was a bit of a tyrant um, and mishandled things and threw temper tantrums and really upset the commoners, the, the masses. And uh, Hen- uh, when Henry was overseas as Henry Bolingbroke, he was basically invited back into England by the nobles who were very upset with the way Richard was managing the country. And he invaded and he imprisoned Richard and he took over the throne. So it was a bit of an ignominious beginning, you know, to overthrow a, a king who was your cousin as well and take the throne. And you'd think it would all be wonderful because this great hero comes into the country and and seizes it and everybody's happy, 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 except, of course, they weren't because in typical political fashion, and gosh, you guys are seeing it all now, um, just, and we see it here too, uh, in our own, with our own politics, um, there are always people who were happy with the incumbent and don't want the new person. So he actually took a poison chalice. And his reign from the beginning was really difficult and there were assassination attempts and all sorts of things. So he's quite a fascinating character, but I read a couple, well, the best biography I read was called, oh, The Fear, was it The Fears of Henry IV? It's in the author's notes anyway. And it's by um, Ian Mortimer, who's a fantastic historian and scholar and writes beautifully. It's like reading a novel. And that was Fascinating. So even in that title, it implies that even though he got what he always wanted, the, the, the throne of England, he didn't sit in it comfortably and his, his reign was always under threat. And um, he became very ill too in middle age. And during the time that Arnica is brewing and in the story, he is quite ill. And again, it was one a couple of those nuggets of information that you find that, um, for example, he falls into a coma for real at one stage in his reign. And gosh, was I able to use that to, <laughs> to um, I hope, good form in the book. It becomes a, a very important plot device. So, yeah, I, I learned heaps about him, Hank, and I didn't know anything really about him before I started writing. And that's the lovely thing about historical fiction too because you do learn about the, um, you, you're, I'm always learning. And, uh, yeah, that's, I, that's I love that part too. Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite things about historical fiction is that um, because I had some really poor history teachers in school and I had some very fantastic ones. And the difference in those two are the people that can take history and storyify it, if you will, and make me feel like I've experienced this thing. Uh, And the other people that just want to hand you wrote facts for you oh. to um you know for you to regurgitate on a test and and it doesn't feel like you've lived it and that's one thing that I love about historical fiction is that I can see how this affects people and how their lives are are changed uh throughout historical events and and the lady brewer of london did that for me it completely transported me to medieval medieval uh england and and I love it uh, so thank you for that 
Oh, thank you. What a lovely thing to say. It's my pleasure. I have to tell you, the whole time you were talking then, I was nodding like one of those little dogs that sit on, <laughs> you know, on the dashboarding cars. I'm just nodding away with you. You are so right. And I think that that's the mistake that has been made with not just history but a few subjects, but particularly history because it does lend itself to dates and wars and when politicians ruled or kings and queens ruled. I mean, Really, who cares? It, it, it's the stories in between. It's the That's right. everyday lives of people and the magical, fantastic. See, this is magic. The fantastic stories that can be told. Like I love learning what they ate, what how they felt. You know, the the the, the trauma, the joys, the all those things. And then you remember the dates, and then you remember who the monarch was. You know. And, and you're so right. I had some wonderful history teachers and some really crap ones as well. <laughs> and I didn't really like this period of history until I started to teach it back to myself. And my teachers became other fantastic writers who made it so accessible and so meaningful to me. And I, I'm so grateful to them for that. But it was ancient history that I loved in school because I had the most magnificent teacher. And I felt like I was reading some tabloid paper when I'd go into the classroom. Right. All the naughty bits about the Caesars and the poisonings and the, you know, the beheadings and the and the affairs. So that, you know, the lustiness and the brutality. And of course, as a teenager, that's what you remember. And 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 I remembered the dates then as well, you know. So you were so right, Hank. You were so right. And I think that is incumbent upon historical fiction writers to make it, yes, accurate, but also gosh, we're in the job of telling stories. And if we can't entertain right. you, if we can't take you along with us on that ride and squeeze your heart and have you gritting your teeth and having you shocked and horrified and appalled at what happened in the past, but also championing the characters, then we have failed. You know, So, yeah. That's right. Well, the new book is called The Lady Brewer of London, and it is uh, now available in uh, in the United States for the first time. And uh, I know people are going to love this book as much as I did. Um, Karen, we've put links to it in the show notes of this episode to make it easy for people to find uh, Kindle edition and paperback. I have to ask you, um, is there uh, is there the possibility of an audiobook you know, in the future? Yes, I think there is. There is one of the Brewer's Tale, um, but I believe that um, the Lady Brewer of London is being done as an audio as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm not 100% sure on that, but The lady, uh, the Brewer's Tale, which is the same book, um, except for your spellings are, are, are Americanized in The Lady Brewer of London, um, yeah, is available. And and, it, and the I can't remember who it was that did the audio, but she did a wonderful job. Hannah Norris did the audio. Uh, ah, I just I looked it up on Audible as you were talking uh, because I didn't even think to look for it uh, under the other title. So that's fantastic. It's uh, available at Audible uh, already as The Brewer's Tale. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see that rebranded uh, for the United States as well. Karen, um, this has been so much fun talking. Um, I love uh, everything that you're doing. And I know that you have a fantastic website. Um, tell people where they can find you online if they want to dig into all the amazing stuff that you're doing. Oh, sure. It's um, Karen R. Brooks. Dot com Very easy because I had to put the R in, which is my middle name, because the Karen Brooks is a very ordinary name. <laughs> so <laughs> I had to distinguish myself with the R. Yeah, KarenRBrooks.com. Thank you, Hank. Thanks. Uh, we will we'll send people to see you and to pick up the new book. Uh, Karen, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. 
Oh, thank you. It's been my absolute pleasure. And can I just say an absolute heartfelt thanks and my wishes for, you know, you all to be safe and well. And we're thinking of you all here in Australia. You're very much in our hearts and minds at the moment. Thank you very much, Karen. On an isolated human planet called Phoenix, outside the Galactic Gate Network, a royal empire teeters on the brink of revolution. The new emperor is weak, the old guard seeks power, and a hidden slave cabal manipulates the great and small houses alike. None of this concerns Simeon Brazhnev, newly appointed steward to one of the most powerful heiresses on the planet. Happy to let the royals play their age-old game of catch the crown, Simeon is more concerned with balancing his mistress's books than worrying about affairs of state. But when Simeon discovers evidence of sedition at the highest levels of government buried deep within her finances, he realizes her great peril. Though a slave, he finds himself trapped in political intrigue, desperate to protect his mistress from the royals who would see her dead and the slave rebels who would make her their pawn. Agonized by the choice of turning her over to the authorities or protecting her secrets, Simeon decides to keep faith with his sovereign over his larger duty, thus flinging himself into a world of power, plot, and assassination. If he fails, they both die, and with them the chance at freedom for Simeon's enslaved race. Set in the Salvage title universe, Salvage Mind is the first of three novels in a new breakout series. Available in ebook format and paperback, Grab your copy today, Salvage Mind by David Allen Jones.